Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media or to tune into our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Now here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Take your Bibles, would you open them to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we're going to pick up right where we left off last time in verse 10. Acts chapter 9, verse 10, we're going to cover maybe 9 up through verse 19. And the Bible study today is entitled, Nothing is Wasted by God. Nothing is Wasted by God. As we step back and look at life, there's many amazing things about seeing a person born again, seeing a person get saved, especially the closer we are to them, uh, or maybe it's just some dramatic salvation story. It's amazing. But it's especially amazing to see someone get saved that you would have thought never. I mean, there may even be people in your life right now, just never. That, that will never happen, Pastor. You, that, they are unreachable, even though last time we learned from the text with Saul here of Tarsus that no one is outside the reach of God, we still have our own feelings and opinions about things, and we look at someone and say, never. Saul of Tarsus was definitely one of those guys. I mean, the early church, men and women, just like you and me, boys and girls, experienced firsthand his out-of-control anger and experienced firsthand his murderous ways, his threats, the out-of-control mayhem, and what the church in Damascus must have felt when they got word that Saul was coming to them, I'm sure sent fears up and down their spine. And yet on the way, God intervened and changed this man in an instant. The change was fast. Remember, if you look back at the text in verse 1, it says Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He got some letters, which was basically permission to do this. And it says in verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly. And things can just change so quickly, especially for the good, if we'll turn our hearts toward him. And the change was fast. And as with any new believer, God already has people ready to minister to him and to help him grow. Because God doesn't save a person and then just launch them into the world without any help. But God has people ready to serve. And in our study last time, we left Saul of Tarsus in Damascus, which was ironic in and of itself, because he's headed to Damascus with all this strength and all this fervor, and he's going to destroy the church single-handedly. But he ends up in the city of Damascus, walked in like a baby by the hand. Blind is what it says in verse, um, in verse 9 here. It says, he was three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now pick up with me in verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Can you pause there if you like to write in your Bibles? Circle the word Ananias. Of course, you Bible students, you remember that name. It goes back a few chapters. This is not the same Ananias of Ananias and Sapphira because they lost their lives because of their great sin of hypocrisy. This is a different Ananias. And his name means Yahweh is gracious. And he lives up to his name. Previously, we met Ananias. He did not live up to his name. This one does. Not only that, notice, it says he received a vision and the Lord said to him, Ananias, And he said, here I am, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas. Now, this is not the same Judas that hung out with Jesus either. And it just shows me that God can redeem situations and names. Like Ananias, you kind of associate with, well, look what happened in the early church. But there's another Ananias. And you think of Judas. I mean, nobody wants to name their kid Judas, but there were other Judases that weren't bad like that. His name comes, Judas comes from the root, Hebrew root, Judah, which means praise. And so not everything is lost. God can turn things around, even with a name. It's so encouraging. So here he is, go down to the street called Straight, 
Go to the house of Judas. One is there called Saul of Tarsus. And behold, he's praying, verse 12. And in a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So Ananias, no doubt, is going about his day. And in the midst of his day, whatever exactly he was doing, God appears to him in a vision and gives him a very specific instructions. God interrupts him with a clear vision to go down to the area of Damascus and into a specific house to meet a specific man by the name of Saul. And what we call this is a divine setup. And we see both parts of it happening On the one hand, God has given Ananias a vision with very clear instructions that will be life-changing for the person that he's sent to. On the other hand, we have Saul of Tarsus, blind, processing everything that's just happened in his life. He's, He's not eating. He's wondering what the future is. He doesn't know what the future is. He doesn't know what God has in store for him. They're both in the dark. Neither one of them know what's gonna happen and neither one of them have any understanding of what the future holds. They've only been given one piece, one direction, a very clear vision, and it's a divine setup, which there are many in the book of Acts, many throughout the scriptures. Now, it's important as we see this divine setup, it's very important that we learn as believers to live our lives with discerning minds, that we are able to tell right from wrong, or in this case, with discernment, that we will live in such a way where we can determine by the confirmation of the Holy Spirit and his word, whether someone that was sent to us is from the Lord. Now, how would Saul know that someone sent to him was from the Lord? God told him, there's gonna be a guy. His name is Ananias. You're gonna know him. You're gonna even know his name because I'm setting it up. Because That's important because There are folks that come through the church from time to time that seem to say they always hear from the Lord. They always hear from the Lord. They always have a word from the Lord. And I've been around long enough. uh, You can be rest assured that not everybody has a word from the Lord that says they have a word from the Lord, especially when it's a life-transforming, life-altering word or seeming word from God. I mean, God, even even throughout the Old Testament, will warn his people, hey, don't listen to them. I didn't send them. He'll say that in the New Testament. There are real prophets and there are false prophets, real teachers, false teachers. Not everybody is sent from the Lord. I mean, for example, uh, young women today, for example, somebody comes to you and says, hey, I was praying last night, just seeking the Lord, you know, and the Lord gave me a vision and you were in it. And God gave me a vision. He told me, that you're going to be my wife. Now, for some of you ladies, your response might immediately be, that can't come from the Lord because I'm married already, bro. But let's say for you single ladies, that a single man came and he had some major spiritual word. I was praying and I went down to the mountain. I went up to the mountains and I climbed a tree and the Lord spoke to me. And I got a vision and you were in it and you're going to be my wife. Listen. You tell that guy, you don't know if he's from the Lord or not. And you don't immediately accept that and that you're going to need to pray about it. Or it could very well be that the Lord spoke to you already that you're going to be single for a season. And you can just look a guy in the eye and go, that is not from the Lord. And you know, his response to that could be very revealing. He could be very argumentative, very controlling. He could be a lot of different things, but you don't have to accept that because you can walk in discernment. Just because somebody says they come in the name of the Lord and they have a vision doesn't mean necessarily that they are from the Lord. It goes both ways, men to women, women to men, and a whole lot of different things. You know, from time to time over the years and the course of the ministry here, I had people come up to me or send me an email or write me a letter that they have said they have heard from the Lord for me on a particular topic and they need to be God's messenger, uh, God has sent them with a message for me. And I have to say over the years, sometimes, sometimes the word that was sent to me was a confirming word on a topic that God was already speaking to me about. And I say, thank you very much. I mean, this is it. I appreciate you being obedient and I receive it. 
And you wouldn't, wouldn't believe, I've been praying about this for a couple years now, and this is from the Lord. Yet other times, like I haven't heard anything from the Lord. No confirmation, no direction, and either I respond that I need to wait and pray over it, or the word is so wacky and weird that I can just say, no, that is not from the Lord. Because God is not wacky or weird. I can just say that very fine. Or the, the word is something contrary to the scriptures. Or the word is something that they picked up. It wasn't from the Lord. They picked it up from something else or someone else. And although I don't know if it's from the Lord, I do know this. I can wait on the Lord and he'll reveal it to me. And you have to be careful. So this is the way, I mean, this is the way, this is a pattern that God works. He works on both sides. When God's in it, he works on both sides of the situation, even if you have to wait a little while and say, okay, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm willing to wait. And so the direction was very specific. I love this because now we find out what was happening in these three days with Saul of Tarsus. He's in the dark, but he's praying. He doesn't know what's happening. He's got a new relationship with Jesus as Messiah, and he just doesn't know what's happening. So he's praying, and in his prayer, God gives him a vision. He says, this guy Ananias is going to show up. He's going to put his hand on you so you can receive your sight. And we think, I, I, I would say that it's a good conclusion that part of his prayer was, hey, will you open my eyes? I want to see. What's going on in my life? God, I am your servant. Like he said earlier, remember uh, when in verse 4, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Um, his response was, who are you, Lord? So he's got that relationship already, and he's got a new prayer relationship. It's not religious anymore. And part of it, I think, was, hey, I want to see again. Is am I going to be blind the rest of my life? And so now he's given answer in the prayer. You're going to meet a guy. He doesn't say when. So it could be another day. It could be another year. It could be. He doesn't say when. That's not revealed. But you're going to meet a guy named Ananias. I'm working on Ananias while I'm working on you, Saul. So here's Ananias' response in verse 13. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I can't wait to go see Saul of Tarsus. I've been praying for him forever and I just can't. That's not what it says. Look what Ananias says. He says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. I, Ananias was a little reluctant. I mean, he receives a vision and very direct words, exactly where to go, what to do, and who to do it with. He's got very precise insight but his response is reluctant. I would say it's a normal response. It would be a normal response I think many of us would have. I mean, you've got to put yourself in the true story here as it relates to us today. I mean, think about it, especially with social media the way it is today. If there was a Saul of Tarsus that was killing Christians, going around from city to city, taking out families, arresting people in the name of Jesus, and we got word Saul of Tarsus is coming to Aurora, and he's looking for churches. And maybe our church was on a list somewhere or something. I think one of our first responses will be to gather together those that are involved in security and safety and make sure that you're protected. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that our first response will be, let's call a prayer meeting. I mean, we want to say that it would. And I'm sure we would have prayer meetings. I mean, but, but you've got to understand, sometimes your first response is a normal response not necessarily a spiritual response. And you would think, well, then God's just going to take you out. What do you mean it wouldn't be a spiritual response? I mean, I think we have a tendency to look at a rosy picture and have kind of spiritual language. Well, you know, if it happened here, Ed, I would call the prayer meeting. Well, we, we thank you for that. But the reality is you don't know what you do until it happens. That's the reality. And what if it happens on a bad day? What if it happens when you're backsliding? Well, what if it happened? Like, you don't know. That's why abiding in Christ is so vital because we don't know when Saul of Tarsus is going to come to town. So think about these guys. Ananias, we, we don't know exactly who he is, but he's a part of a body of believers in Damascus, Christians that are worshiping there. Gospel has gone forth. Some have suggested that he is a leader in this little house church that they're in, but he's just an obscure man that comes on the scene very, very quickly, and he's heard. He's heard about all the damage. I mean, you think about it. Let's say he is a leader in the church. Then he would be a target. 
Saul would go after him, go after his wife, go after his kids. And so this is a very real, present danger for him. I mean, he's already heard Saul's coming to town. And Saul coming to town, he has no idea what happened to Saul on the way. He has no idea. Because if he did, he probably wouldn't have responded that way. He's just working with the information that he has. And that is common for us. We respond normally, uh, maybe not so hyper-spiritually, and we have to be reminded that God is still with us. He's not going to condemn you. He, He doesn't condemn Ananias here. He actually gives him more information, as you'll see in a moment. But this reluctant response comes because God is testing Ananias' faith. This is a big test. Oh, so you are seeking me, and oh, you live for me. Okay, so here, here you are, Ananias. You're ready for this one. I want you to go meet Saul. Saul of Tarsus? Saul of Tarsus. But I heard about that guy. And I don't think I want to go visit him. I don't think I want to. You know, if he wants to do harm, and he's looking for me, and you're sending me, I'm high. Like, What? And yet, that's the life of faith on so many different levels in our lives. So notice the response of Jesus. No condemnation. No, what kind of believer are you? Why'd you respond that way? The answer from the Lord in verse 15 is very simple. Go. You could stop there. That's all Jesus needed to say. Go. But he gives an explanation. Why? Because he loves you. You know, all God has to say is go for you. That's all he has to say. For all that I've done for you, Ed, I just want you to go. And then my response is, wait, what? I'm not sure. And then God's response is, go. And then he gives the explanation, at least a partial one. He's a chosen vessel of mine. He basically says, Saul's born again. He's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. The response to reluctance was God just continuing to nudge him along the way. You got to go. I mean, he had to go. Because God has already said in a vision, it's going to be Ananias. You're the man. Nobody else is going to go. You're the one. And you know, Ananias was ready for this, even though faith was being drawn out of him. And Saul of Tarsus is ready for this even though they're both in the dark and they don't have full understanding, God's response, just go because Saul is a special man and you're going to play an important part in his life, Ananias. I mean, to me, it's so encouraging the patience that God has with Ananias here, but also I look back and I see the patience God has with me. God has with you in our responses as he continues to grow us from glory to glory and strength to strength. A lot of things are revealed when he tests our faith. And our response to that will determine our spiritual growth in the moment. You know, Saul of Tarsus was specifically chosen by God for this moment and for this ministry. And you could say the same thing for your own life as a born-again believer. God has chosen you for this moment and this ministry. Even if you're not in any ministry at all, like officially, like a title-wise, God has you in ministry to serve him. To enjoy him. In John, you can jot it down in John chapter 15 and verse 16. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose and appointed you. That you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask in my father, in my name, he's going to give you. And so Saul was a very unique man, chosen for a very unique purpose. Saul did not choose God God chose him. Same story. You did not choose God. God chose you, which is totally encouraging to me. <laughs> Choosing the unchoosable. The one, that, the one that maybe wouldn't even chose himself. God is so gracious to choose us. Saul was unique. And this is where we learn that nothing is wasted by God. Nothing. Now you've heard that phrase used here before from the pulpit. And it's usually from a different angle. It usually, I'll I'll remind you that nothing's wasted from God from the angle of Romans 8.28. 
all the pains and the problems and the difficulties are not wasted by God. God uses all things. He's working all things together for the good. He's working all things, good and bad, for his purposes, for your good and his glory. But today I want to give you another, like a diamond, you know, the goodness of God and his faithfulness like a diamond. I want to give you a different facet of it. And that is all of your experiences, all of your life experiences, everything about you, you have been, God is using so that you can fulfill the ministry that God has called you to. So you can be the woman and the man that God wants you to be. All of it, everything. Now let's consider Saul for a second. Number one, if you're taking notes, what did God use along the way in his life? Well, first of all, God was a Jew. He used the family. He used this family. He was a Jewish man. But not only that, he was also a Roman citizen. And so God used the citizenship of the country that he was born in. But not only that, he grew up in Tarsus, which was heavenly influenced by Grecian culture and was home to one of the top three universities of the time. And so he was born in a city that valued education and knowledge. And on top of that, about at 12 or 13, he was probably taken to Jerusalem to sit under the feet of the esteemed Rabbi Gamaliel, who Gamaliel gives us feedback uh, about Paul, about this young Saul, that in, under his teaching that he couldn't keep up with him, couldn't get him enough books, couldn't get enough resources, that Saul was so smart. And God was using his Jewish background, his Roman citizenship, his Grecian-influenced city he grew up in to prepare him. Not only that, number two, Saul was zealous. His personality God was using. He was one of those guys that was excited about whatever he did. We might use the phrase today, when we think of zealous, I know it's kind of a Bible word, but when you're thinking of a word to associate zealous with today, think about, we might use the phrase on fire for the Lord. On, on fire would be, man, you just know that guy's going, she's just nonstop. Another phrase we might use to describe zealous is the phrase all in. And I think we can relate to that. You know, we all have people in our lives that we just know, man, they are all in. Whatever they do, they're all in. And by the way, that's a great personality trait to follow the Lord, not so much in the world. It's not a great character. When you start drinking and you're all in, it's going to destroy you. Well, when you start dabbling in drugs and you're all in, it's going to destroy you. If you start telling one lie and you're all in, you're just going to be known as a liar that you are. Like, it is not good to have that personality is, is in the world, but redeemed by God, it's a beautiful personality to have. Well, Saul had that. Got him in a lot of trouble, made him a murderer. and you know, Like this personality that he had convinced him that killing people in the name of God was God's will for his life. And yet God redeemed it. Not only that, Saul was also a zealous religious man, a religious Pharisee. We know that by the time, it's unfortunate, but by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Pharisees had left what they really, how they started. You know, they started one way, but by the time Jesus comes on the scene, they're murdering Jesus. The Pharisees, when they began, were a great group of people. They were very conservative. They believed in a literal interpretation of the Torah, and they wanted to live a holy and righteous life and wanted others to join them. However, over time, their emphasis upon the word and the literal, literal understanding of the scriptures became, they, they, was replaced by their teachings or their doctrines or their interpretations. They began to confuse their interpretations of the scriptures with the scriptures themselves. So much so Jesus had to tell them, you guys are teaching as the doctrines of God, the commandments of men. And that's just not, that wasn't helpful. They crucified Jesus Christ. But he started out with a desire to be holy and righteous toward God, and that, that served him well as a born-again believer. Not only that, Saul was a respected man. He knew how to use that respect as a rabbi to open doors. When the subject of God came up, Saul of Tarsus was not too far behind the name Gamaliel. And that gave him a lot of opportunity to reach people just from the respect that he had as a teacher of the word. And I say all these things, there are many other things to consider, to say that 
Saul was perfectly molded and fit for this time. He was the perfect, even if you can't put all the pieces together in his life, God was putting all the pieces together for this moment in time. God wasted no experience and none of his upbringing. Now we need to make that very, very personal for us today. I want to give you the application of this because it's very, very important that you understand this. It's very important you understand that you have been chosen by God and that everything in your life is being used by God. Your personality, your upbringing. I mean, you think about the, the fact that you were born on a certain day in a certain year. You know, just, you know, some of you are like, uh, I don't like my age. I don't like, yeah, but the fact that you were born on a certain day in a certain year means you're here right now. Like God is using that. A, a certain neighborhood or a family that you were born in, as painful as it might be. You were born in a family. You were born in a city. You grew up in a house. Maybe you were in the military. You traveled to 12 different places or 13. Like, like God has used all of that in your life. Nothing is wasted, even though you can look back on some of those and go, man, I, I didn't really like it. And I don't know what God was doing. I don't know why he let me do that. I don't understand that. You're in the dark, just like Saul, just like Ananias. And you're in the, I don't know how God's going to use this. But I'll tell you at the appointed time, you will see and you will understand. God will give you the revelation that's necessary for you to take the next step of faith. Let me give you an example before we go into a little more deep. Would you turn over to Joshua chapter 18? Nothing is wasted by God. Yes, even the challenging times of your life. And as we drop into Joshua chapter 18, they're beginning to give the allotments of the land to the various tribes. Joshua is leading the children of Israel after 40 years of wilderness wandering. Joshua comes after 40 years of wilderness wandering where the generation that refused to believe God at his word ended up dying in the wilderness. So now the next generation, their sons and their grandchildren are the ones taking the land. That's who we read of here in Joshua 18. And they're about ready to give some allotments. And there's this instruction in verse 8. Joshua 18, verse 8. It says, Then the men arose to go away, and Joshua charged those who went to survey the land. Mark that word, survey. They went to survey the land, saying, Go, walk through the land, survey it, and come back to me. And I may cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went, passed through the land, and wrote the survey in a book in seven parts by cities. And they came to Joshua at the camp in Shiloh, verse 10. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh. And then Joshua divided the land to the children of Israel according to their divisions. And you could say according to the survey. Now that word survey is a technical word. It literally speaks of describing and writing or drawing the lines precisely. It's a word that we would use today. If you're in the construction business or you're a city planner or you're involved in that, almost always they will hire somebody to survey the land. And they will give a very precise measurement of the land and of the space and of whatever necessary with all their expensive equipment, they'll survey the land. So here in Joshua... We have a group of people that have just come out of the wilderness wandering for 40 years, not only given instructions, but able to follow through with this. They were able to survey the land with such precise detail. Notice that they wrote it down, it says in verse 9, in seven parts by cities in a book. They gave a report back to Joshua. Here is the survey of the land. This is the official reckoning of the land. So we have to ask this important question. And this is one, by the way, this is one of the reasons why we study the Bible verse by verse. Because this kind of stuff is missed if you're not reading through the Bible verse by verse. Or if you're just reading by really quickly, we just pause at times and go, hey, wait a minute. There's an important question that needs to be asked. And it's this. Where did they learn this technical skill of surveying the land? 
I mean, they came right out of the wilderness wandering. It's not like in the wilderness wandering, they stopped, set up survey skills, and you can go to college for three years, learn how to survey, make all your equipment from the rocks and the sticks that are out there, and then you'll use it one day. There's nothing like that happening in the wilderness wandering. Nowhere at any time. It's definitely not happening in Joshua. It's been fight, battle, win, loss, going through, taking the promises of God. So where did they learn this? I suggest that they learned it in Egypt. In the hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt. Remember, they were in Egypt. It was the book of Exodus that reveals to them, God, as they're crying out for deliverance, God gives them a deliverer, Moses. And we know those that were 20 years or older would have been involved in all kinds of construction projects. And some would have picked up this particular skill. They would have learned it in Egypt. And it's important in whatever you assess as Egypt in your life, whatever difficult place, why is this important to know is because very simply in a room this large with this many people, the Bible study going out on the radio and online, listen, I know this to be a fact. There are many listening to me right now that you are really discouraged and unhappy where you are right now. They're very, very upset about the matter. You might even associate it as an Egypt crying out to God for a deliverer. You wonder why God would want you in this school. You want to be in that school, but you're in this school. Or why do you live in this city? Because I want to live in that city, but you're in this city. Or you look at your upbringing and go, why did God put me in this family? I want that family. Well, God gave you the family that he gave you on purpose. He gave you the parents he gave you on purpose. And you can go through in many different ways how the enemy of our souls and how the world wants us to be discontented where we are. Because when we're discontented and upset, we're going to miss the heavenly vision. We're going to miss the training that God has for us for what's up ahead. We're going to be so desirous of someone else or something else that we're not going to embrace where we are right now in contentment and learn how, what God has for us in the next season. And there's so many things that are designed to get our eyes off the Lord. And right now, some of you right now listening to me you just want out. You just think anywhere else, somewhere else. What could God possibly do here? I mean, you think of Ananias here, just taking it back to the text. Saul's coming, he's gonna destroy us. We gotta get out. And God says, no, I don't want you to get out. Because if you left, you wouldn't be there to go down to the street, straight street, find Judas's house, walk in, lay hands on that man and welcome him to the family of God. And I wonder what God has in store for us where some are just sitting back, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this. Even Egypt. I believe, like Saul of Tarsus, that we'll be able to look back on our lives and see even some of the difficult things that we've endured and overcome that the Lord used it all to make us the people that we are. We're all very different people with very different upbringings and we're all very different and that's a good thing. God loves diversity. I'm so grateful he doesn't, all, he doesn't make us all line up and become exact replicas of each other. Cookie cutter Christians, you know, just like we're all dressed the same, speak the same, think the same. That's not the body of Christ. We are very different. We have very different upbringings, very different ways of seeing things. Again, some of you, you were raised in a home that set you up for some of the best education this world has to offer. And here you are with all that education, using it for the glory of God. And some of us, we grew up in an environment where that wasn't afforded to us. Or we made some mistakes along the way, sinful mistakes that's not afforded to us. And yet, God uses us nonetheless. The very educated, the not so educated, God uses us. You, you grew up in a particular part of the country 
where God has you specifically. And you know, sometimes there's this sense of, I want to do great things for God. But what if you're Ananias? And, and the word, of, he comes on the scene and leaves. We don't know anything more about him. And his whole call was, just go to one guy. That's it, just go to one guy. No way, he's going to kill us. Don't you know why he's here? But could Ananias ever have conceived what God was going to do with the guy he was called to? Great things on behalf of God is just faithfulness, church. Just do what he tells you to do and go to the people he tells you to go to. You know, sometimes people will associate this like with their job. They're so mad at their job, don't like their job. And they want to be in full-time ministry. And what they assess that as, you know, what, when, what really things will super improve if I could just work at the church, because that's heaven, that's heaven. If you just worked at this church, welcome to heaven. Let me let you in on a little secret. This is not heaven. Not only that, I think the spiritual warfare ramps up even more serving here in a full-time capacity where your paycheck is from the church, from the tithes and offerings of the church. But, but here is the reality. All of us as believers are in full-time ministry. It doesn't matter who's signing your check. It doesn't matter where the direct deposit's coming from. Whoever you are and wherever you are, you are in the full-time ministry. And because of your upbringing and because of your talents and because of your skills and because of your connections and because of where you live and your family, all of that, good and bad, nothing is wasted by God so that he can get you to the place that you belong. Even if it is in one moment's time, go to this guy's house, lay hands on him, on the guy that's in that house, and that will be an affirmation of my love to him because I already told him it's going to happen. That's the work of the Lord. That's important. Saul was prepared his entire life for what God called him to do. Let's ask another question here as we wind down. What did God have for him? What was his calling? Well, we get insight on that, didn't we? In verse 16, here's the calling of God for Saul. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. Ananias would be the forerunner for this message. Saul would live the rest of his life learning this truth. God showed him the rest of his life the things he would suffer for his namesake. You Bible students, you could find it in 1 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We have just a little bit of insight from what Paul experienced, uh, what Saul of Tarsic experienced in his ministry for the gospel. He lost everything for the cause of Christ. Suffering is a part of the Christian experience. If you were not told when you were born again that you were born again into a life of suffering, I'm sorry. I want to apologize to you personally on behalf of the body of Christ, whether it happened here or someone else, somewhere else, that someone didn't tell you the truth about what it meant to follow Jesus. It is a painful path. It is a challenging journey. Not everything's going to go your way. Not everybody's going to like you. Not everybody's going to support you. You will lose things for the cause of Christ. You will hurt because of the cause of Christ. Even today, around the world, one in, uh, statistically, according to Open Doors USA, one in every seven Christians is suffering some form of persecution. The numbers vary, of course, depending on how you take that survey, but one in seven. Not merely the inconsistencies or the inconveniences of life that you and I might feel, but suffering for the cause of Christ. Not just the pain of sin, not just the pain of someone else's sin or our own sin, but true pain and suffering because you are a follower of Christ. This is important that Paul will grasp this. He's going to suffer many things. And today, in a culture that values comfort and ease we have even false teachers that will come alongside and say oh no no if you're suffering it's your fault well what are you talking about what do you do with Saul here he hasn't even done anything yet and God's telling him it's going to be rough it's going to be challenging what do you do with something like that well there, there is no real answer because they have they're false teachers they don't have a good bible answer to that those that teach such nonsense, they don't like Paul. 
In a real way, they don't like Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible who would say, in this world you will suffer persecution, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. His whole life he'd be living out the kind of pain from faith to faith. And so God prepared him for this moment and then God's going to prepare him for the next moment. All the suffering was to get him ready for what was next until finally, according to history, they cut his head off for the cause of Christ. But now is not then. Notice verse 17. So we close. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. So again, if you like to write in your Bibles, you circle the word go and then circle the phrase Ananias went and just write a little line there. That's the response. The, the re proper response to the direction of God is to go. And so when God says go, the very next thing we should read, and so and so went. That's the right response, as soon as possible. And notice, he goes into the house. He does what he was told to do, exactly. He lays hands on him, and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, right here in verse 17, now he knows. <laughs> he got the story, and he believed it by faith until he got there. And now that he got there, whatever the demeanor is, whatever's, whatever's happening in Saul's demeanor, what's happening in the house, here it is. It confirms, hey, the Lord Jesus, he, he saved you. What happened to you when he appeared to you, he sent me. And he sent me so that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And when he'd received food, he was strengthened. And then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So you want to step back for a second and just consider, if, uh, if Ananias was some kind of leader in the house church in Damascus, he would have been Saul's enemy. Enemy number one. Strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter. He would have been enemy number one. But by the work of the Holy Spirit, by God's divine work in Saul's life, Saul's enemy becomes his friend. Now what happens? Well, with Saul, not only does his enemy become his friend, but his friends very quickly become his enemy. You can see it in verse 23. We'll get there eventually, but notice. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. There were those that he was aligned with, buddy-buddy, but now, because of Christ, they're going to come against him and try to kill him. And this will be part of his life until he is finally executed for his faith. And that is the irony of following Jesus. You think, man, the people that are closest to you are going to be the most excited, but they, friends become enemies, and enemies become friends in Christ. And I love this. Ananias, like many believers before him, obeyed the Lord and did what God asked of him. He doesn't know how it's going to end, but he was obedient. And even though he's not mentioned in the hall of faith, he could be, as he walked by faith. He doesn't know anything, but he walks into it, and as he walks by faith, things are revealed to him, as we've learned in previous studies. He received the word of God, and that was enough for him. He received the affirmation. So when he questioned it, what did God do? Gave him assurance of that word, and it was the assurance of that word that finally moved him. And it's a great reminder for us, a lot of little tidbits that could be their own Bible studies, you know, but it's a reminder for us that the assurance of God's word in your life today is enough. You can act out on the, and live out the assurance of God's word. If you try to talk yourself out of it, if you ignore the danger signs, if you choose to take things into your own hands and go against the assurance of God's word, you will surely suffer the consequences that's just a word from the Lord to someone. You will not get around it. It will be a painful choice, even if at the beginning it might be a very emotional choice or very makes you feel good. It will be very painful. The assurance of God's word is enough for us to step out in faith and to follow him. Even, you know, people, your own mind and the enemy, this culture is like, don't believe God's word, don't believe God's word. A bunch of fairy tales and churches irrelevant and Christians and all, all sorts of things to undermine your faith, take you away from the word of God, doubt God's word. Just like in the garden, has God indeed said? The answer is yes, and I believe it. That's the answer. Yes, he said that, and I believe it. 
And we get to go forward by faith. Ananias goes forward by faith and in love. And so we have this obscure believer, at least to us. Comes on the scene, leaves so quickly. And what do we know about him? He was faithful. He was obedient to the heavenly vision. And he has ended up being used, this obscure believer, ends up being used to minister to the one, of, one of the most successful, powerful, awesome Christians to ever walk the planet. Just this guy in Damascus. And you think about us, just this guy in Aurora, this gal in Aurora, what could God ever do? I don't know, but I'm eager to find out because <laughs> he can do a lot of things. If he can do it with this guy in Damascus, he can certainly do it with you in Aurora or Denver or wherever you are from and wherever you are. And again, there's so much in here. First of all, the baptism, he's baptized after he's saved. I don't want you to miss that. Because there are those that will go around going, you have to be baptized to be saved. If you're not baptized, you're not saved. That's not biblical at all. Notice, we already see that God told Ananias he's saved. And he, we already see that the Holy Spirit, he's baptized with power from the Holy Spirit. So he receives the Holy Spirit. Only believers receive the Holy Spirit. Only believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's this guy that's baptized. You got to see it again reading through the Bible, studying it verse by verse. If you don't do that, you miss stuff like this. This is a very simple teaching. And you might just read through it. Yeah, that's what happens. You kind of take it for granted. But this is a great passage to go, wait a minute. This is, this is very clearly he receives the Holy Spirit. This is not the first time in the Bible someone has the Holy Spirit before they're water baptized. Wait till we get to chapter 10 with Cornelius and the work of God with the Gentiles. So be clear, we believe in believer's baptism. Only believers are baptized. If an unbeliever gets baptized without repentance and faith, the only thing happens in the water is they get wet. That's it. They don't get saved. Water doesn't save anyone. It never has saved anyone. It never will save anyone. Only the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse you from your sins. And that's what's happening with Saul, Saul, here. Saul here. Now, one last thing. Well, no, two last things and then communion, sorry. I just want you to see if, if Ananias represents the church here, his first experience with the church in Damascus, which I think he does. We don't know much about Judas, but let's, maybe Judas did, but we get this is the first revelation. I want you to consider three things. Number one, Saul of Tarsus' first experience with the church was a kind touch. He laid hands on him. Didn't scare him, he still can't see didn't scare him, came in, gave him a word, laid hands on him. Secondly, the first words that Saul of Tarsus hears from the church were encouraging words, words from the Lord. God sent me here. And finally, the first experience that he has in the church is the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. God is all over this. I know Ananias has the focus, but God is all over this. God meets him in love and mercy and grace and power and service, separating him. You know, when he was baptized, that did it for him. That outward act of obedience told everyone that came with him, I am no longer associated with my past. I am now associated with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That did him in. The bapt when he was water baptized, that was the final straw. That was the declaration. And that's why we water baptized today. However, God was very gracious to him because he got one more thing here at the end of verse 19. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Don't you think that was an interesting gathering? Don't you think they had a lot to talk about? Don't you think, because we know Saul already dealt with a lot of guilt and shame over his past. I wonder if that's started, starting to come out. He'd go, I can't believe I was coming after you. And he'd look at, I can't believe it. I can't, what am I? And just, there's just ministry flowing, probably tears flowing, probably a little bit of laughter. It's like, God, sense of humor. It's unbelievable. God, you're so good. A lot of worship, a lot of praise. But here he is hanging out. That, just like that, days, just days, just days days on his way to kill these very people they have them in their house and they hang out with them i mean that's amazing stuff that's the power of the church on the earth today you can see why as the church leans on all kinds of other things and makes 
the only way you're going to make a difference, it's not by might, not by power, but what? By my spirit, says the Lord. Only God can do something like this. You can't make this up. We can't manufacture it. We can't create 10 different ministries to try to duplicate this. This is the spirit of God. And this is what he has for you if you're open and obedient and faithful. Amen? Father, I thank you for this as we prepare our hearts for communion. Um, I pray that I've handled this text in a way that's relevant for us as a church, Lord, that is true to your word, but also true to our church, true to our hearts, that we might follow in the footsteps of Ananias. We might fall in the footsteps of Saul of Tarsus, that we might open our home like Judas, that we might hang out days with a former enemy like the church. And even as we think about our own responses, that we wouldn't respond so quickly in the normal or the natural, but we would make room for the supernatural. We would yield ourselves to you, God. That we would be substantively different than we've ever been in the life of following you. And maybe you're going to show us how much we have to suffer for your namesake. Maybe some are already learning that lesson. Even now, God, I pray comfort into their lives, strength and help, deliverance and power. I pray for humility and brokenness among us, God. I pray, Lord, that it doesn't matter what we've done, that we might come to you and embrace your forgiveness. Believe you receive you, submit to you. And that's how we come to the communion table. Ready to receive a memory, a remembrance of your body broken for us. Your blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Church. For prayer, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. To listen to this message in its entirety or to join us for our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.